Good evening and welcome. Glad that you could join us today. Uh, it's an honor to share God's Word with you. Our text tonight is from the second letter written by the Apostle Peter. Um, so you could turn there with me. That would be great. Second Peter is really a beautiful farewell letter from a pastor to his beloved sheep. Uh, think of the context. Peter knows that his death is coming, and he wants to give some brief final words of encouragement. Peter will be killed by the Emperor Nero in a brutal crackdown on Christians in the mid to late first century. This letter would have been written very near his death. Uh, the culture around these believers to whom Peter is writing uh, were hostile, very hostile. Persecution and suffering were ever-present and were getting worse. This letter contains exhortations for continuing the Christian life and the Christian faith without Peter. Peter's uh, a father. You could, you could say he's, he's a general, and, and he is leaving his beloved uh, family behind, and he has some words that he wants them to remember. Occasionally, when I'm speaking at DIG, I will say something like, there's one thing I want you to know before you leave dig. It is this, whatever it is. It is the authority of Scripture. It is justification by faith alone. Before you get into that class of a skeptical and confident atheistic professor, before you face the challenges of faith that are shot through our culture, I want you to know this. This is what Peter is doing here in this letter. Put yourself in his shoes. He knows that this persecution is here and getting worse. He also knows that the only hope of getting through it is to hold fast to Jesus. Parents, I expect that you can really resonate here. Obviously, the situations are different, but the feeling is exactly the same. You think about your kids, and you think about the trials that they will face, and you want them to know that the only hope for making it through is holding fast to Christ. The only hope for making it through loneliness. The only hope for making it through unmet expectations for life. The only hope for making it through natural doubts. The only hope for making it through the temptations that they'll face in our world. Peter is a father, a grandfather in the faith knowing that hardship is coming, and writing a letter to appeal to his children to hold fast to Jesus. In the letter as a whole, he articulates four main exhortations that he wants the Christians to hear and to know before he leaves them. First, do not presume upon your election, but strive for right living. Second, do not fear, you can trust in the Word of God. Third, never give up the fight for the purity of the gospel. And fourth, do not lose hope, the Lord will come again soon. What beautiful 
and succinct, what a beautiful and succinct set of priorities. The more you think about them, the more you see Peter's wisdom as a shepherd. We would all do well to adopt these priorities as we seek to disciple others. Four, uh, four things that are a guide for living the Christian life and a curriculum for encouraging young Christians. Lord willing, we could look at uh, the other three items but uh, in, a, in, a different, in different sermons, but tonight I really want to zero in on the second exhortation, namely that we must trust in the authority of the Word of God. Let's pray together before we read this uh, passage tonight. Father, we are thankful for the grace that is your Word. Your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We depend upon it in a fallen world as we depend as children who depend upon the guidance and direction of their Father. We ask that you would grant us ears to attend to you speaking tonight and the will to put what we learn into practice in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as a lamp, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. The word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, this section of Peter's letter is an exhortation that since the Word of God is certain and trustworthy, we who trust in Christ have great hope in this life and in the life to come. I suggest that Peter's thesis for this section is found in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. So I'd like us to zero in on this verse. We're really going to talk about this verse uh, tonight. To get at what Peter means here in this passage, there are two questions about this thesis verse that I think we need to have answered. First, 
What does Peter mean by the phrase, we have the word, the prophetic word more fully confirmed? And second, how therefore do we pay attention? Tonight's plan will be to try and answer each of those questions with two points apiece. So four points in total, two for the first, two for the second. First, what does Peter mean when he says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed? Two things. He means that the gospel is not a new idea. And second, he means that we can trust the word of God absolutely. So the gospel is not some new idea. In this passage, Peter describes his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. You recall that Jesus took three disciples with him up the holy mountain where he encountered Moses and Elijah, and he was clothed with light. Jesus was clothed with light. At this confluence of amazing events, God the Father spoke from heaven, telling Peter and the others that Jesus was God's beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. Peter gives this account of this story to argue for the reliability and certainty of both the apostolic testimony and the prophetic revelation found in the Old Testament. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. Peter is not merely saying, John and I didn't make this stuff up. He's saying much more than that. See, Peter remembers well the, the clarity that he and the other disciples gained about the Scripture from the risen Christ, recorded for us in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 44. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, the law and the prophets and the writings uh, of which the Psalms is the first book, is the Hebrew delineation of the sections of the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures are often idiomatically referred to as the law and the prophets. Jesus himself uses this idiom a number of times. Jesus is telling his disciples here in Luke chapter 24 that all of the Old Testament is about him. And he gives an outline then in the verses following. And he, says to the, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus is saying the Old Testament contains the gospel. That is, both the story and mission of the gospel had been explained beforehand. That there had been thousands of years of prophecy proclaiming the good news of the Savior to come. And that Peter and his brother apostles were eyewitnesses to the full blossom of the long-promised flower of redemptive history. 
Let me encourage you in this coming month to look for this truth in the sermons and in your personal Bible study, because Christmas is an excellent time to meditate on this truth, to meditate on the ancient plan of redemption. How much did the Old Testament tell us about Jesus' birth? Which leads to our second point, that we can trust the Word of God absolutely. Peter tells us back in his letter that he and the other apostles didn't uh, follow made-up stories or myths. They were eyewitnesses of the coming promised Savior. We, Peter says, who are proclaiming to you salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, didn't just invent this out of thin air. We are simply eyewitnesses to the fulfillment of what the law and the prophets have promised. And those prophecies and promises weren't carefully calculated stories because we saw them fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The story of the Old Testament is the story of the future arrival and triumph of Christ. And because he came and accomplished what he accomplished, the prophetic word in the Old Testament is more fully confirmed. The Greek word for confirmed here has the sense of established or secure. Peter is saying, any doubt that you had about the authority of the Old Testament has been put to rest because Jesus came and did exactly what it promised he would do. The triumph of Jesus on Easter morning has proven that the Old Testament is true and that it is authoritative. How is that the case? Because of what the, old, what the prophets of the Old Testament promised uh, has come to pass, pass in, perfectly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Peter demonstrates this from his own experience. When God told Peter and the two other disciples on the holy mountain, uh, how many witnesses were there needed to prove a thing in Israel? Two, who other than uh, Jesus and the disciples were there uh, when the voice spoke? Moses and Elijah, Moses who represents the law, Elijah who represents the prophets. This rich symbolism is not lost on Peter. How has God spoken to his people heretofore? through the law, through Moses, and through the prophets, through Elijah. And what is it that the law and prophets testify to? The fact that Jesus is God's son and came to earth to accomplish all that the Godhead had planned. I'm going to give you a list. There are many specific prophecies that are fulfilled in the person and ministry of Jesus that the nations would be blessed through Abraham's lineage, specifically through Isaac and then through Jacob, that a king with an eternal kingdom would come through David's offspring, that he would be a prophet like Moses and a faithful priest who does the will of God, that the Messiah would be born to a virgin in Bethlehem, be called God with us, and live for a time in Egypt, that his ministry would begin in Galilee, 
uh, be miraculous, that is, he would do miracles, and that he would destroy the work of the devil, that he would teach in parables, and people would not listen, that his ministry and redemption would extend to the Gentiles, that Jerusalem would rejoice as Christ rode into her on a donkey, that he would be scorned and betrayed for 30 silver coins, that Jesus would be our great Passover lamb. And as he was sacrificed, just like that Passover lamb, none of his bones would be broken, that they would pierce his hands and his feet, that they would cast lots for his clothing, that Jesus would be lifted up and all who looked to him would live, that he would conquer death, and that his body would not see decay, that the Messiah would bring a new covenant, pour out his spirit upon his people, and have all authority to judge. I just gave you 30 specific prophecies from the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. There are dozens, if not hundreds, more not to mention the more thematic and theological fulfillments that we find listed in the book of Hebrews or the book of Romans and elsewhere. The incarnation of Jesus and the gospel that he accomplished are the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed to. By appealing to his experience on the holy mountain, Peter is asserting that we have every reason to believe the Old Testament and believe the salvation that it promised. Peter says in these verses, you can be certain of the gospel that I proclaimed to you because it was promised beforehand in the Old Testament and proven in Jesus Christ. So, that leads us to our third point. Since we can be sure of what was promised, and what has been accomplished in Christ, Peter says, we must pay attention. We must pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. The Word of God is a lamp to us in the dark place that is this world. Obviously, the words of Psalm 119 are being alluded to here by Peter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. We see the world by this light, and we are kept safe by this light. It is our clarity until the new day comes, that is, until uh, the life to come, when we will be with God and uh, he will be our light. Thus, paying attention means looking at the world in light of the Word. That's our third point. And it also means, our fourth point, keeping on doing so until the end. Look at the world in light of the Word. Uh, I don't think that I can understate the power of the current that flows against us 
as the world, the flesh, and the devil try to get us to look at the events in our lives and the events in the world around us through a self-centered, self-focused lens. Uh, the world, the flesh, the devil say on repeat forever, your desires are a lamp unto your feet. We are constantly catechized by our culture, by our world, that our chief end is to glorify ourselves forever, and that our only comfort is that we belong to ourselves and to none other. The sin of the garden was an attempt to change uh, the central focus, our central focus, away from God and onto us. The problem is that without the proper focus, uh, that is, our designed, original designed focus, nothing can be seen correctly. There will only be frustration and futility. Thankfully, by the power of the Spirit, the Word of God can correct this impairment. The Word shows us the true nature of things. The central figure in the Bible is God himself. The protagonist of the universe is God himself, not us. We see in the word that the world was created good but has been corrupted by the sin of man and that though man should worship God, he is constantly trying to invent other things to worship, ultimately himself, ultimately ourselves. We see in the word that all things exist to bring God glory, including us, each of us. Paul has a very similar exhortation in Romans 12, verse 2, where he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is acceptable and perfect. So what is the renewal of our mind? It is the work of the Spirit correcting the self-worship natural perspective of the human mind with the Bible, using the Bible. And what do we gain by this renewal? The ability to test and discern what is the will of God and what is good. The natural question then is how do we work at this? What is our role? How, how do we... Peter is exhorting us to pay attention. How do we do it? We simply have to attend to the Word of God. Uh, what I mean when I say attend to the Word of God is pursue the means of grace that is the Word of God. We must make use of the Word. We must give ourselves to its study and learning of uh, the Word of God. We must hide it in our hearts. We must pursue it daily, weekly, uh, as a discipline, regularly, consistently, prayerfully, by ourselves and with others. Time in the Word must become a personal discipline. You need to spend time in the Word yourself 
and with family, if you have one. We should seek to be gripped by the Spirit in His Word. But we can't let our subjective experience of the pursuit uh, be the determinative, determinative factor in the pursuit. That is, uh, you can't just pursue it when it feels good. You can't just read the Word when you feel like it. You have to work uh, toward hearing the, the voice of God uh, through the Scripture. That is, even when we're not feeling like it. Someone told me last week about a famous author published maybe 10, 20 years ago who said something like, uh, if you are just reading the Bible out of duty, you should stop because the Lord doesn't want your insincere worship. This is terrible advice. It's like saying stop eating unless you absolutely are delighted by every bite. You need this food. Pursue the word. Pick it up and read it and pray until you are gripped by it. Corporate worship is also a discipline. Uh, far too often we approach corporate worship as if it is about us and not Christ. We spend a lot of energy critiquing music styles and preaching styles uh, when we should be quieting our hearts and listening humbly for the voice of God. Stop asking, did I like the sermon? Or uh, sometimes what that really means is, do I like the preacher? And start asking, what is the Lord saying to us in his word and how can I follow him better? Uh, stop being a consumer of worship and start being a participant in worship. This discipline angle, I think, is a helpful one. Time in the Word is a self-discipline, like physical exercise. Uh, you have to make yourself do it. You have to focus on it and understand what you are doing and think about it. And it does not produce instant results you don't necessarily notice the results today. In fact, today was hard, right? You notice, what you notice is increased peace in your soul after a couple weeks. Or after a couple weeks of making the word a priority. Or after months, after years, you see the life-sustaining effects of regular uh, disciplined time in the word uh, hearing from your Lord uh, as he speaks in the word. And my last point is a short, shorter point. Uh, and that is simply that we must keep on doing this, that is pursuing the Lord in his word until the end. I think this is what Peter says to us in the, uh, in the last part of verse 19. And it, it is from his pastor's heart that he says it. We must keep pursuing the Lord and his word until the new day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. The new day referred to here is the next life. Peter is saying that we must not grow weary of this work. 
uh, pursuing the voice of God in the Word and gaining wisdom and understanding, fighting the ever-present temptation to see yourself as the protagonist of your story. We must not lose heart when there are dry seasons, quote-unquote, when we read the Word and feel distant from the Lord. In fact, we should not judge the effort to pursue the Lord and His Word by how we feel. We must not be discouraged when our culture deems the things of, that the Bible teaches as backward or even morally wrong. We should be expecting it. Of course, the ethics required by a holy God are not going to match what fallen humans want to do. We must not give in to discouragement when we are not as consistent with the discipline as we wish we were. We are not saved by our discipline. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And we will grow in joy and satisfaction of that salvation through disciplined time in the Word. We must not give in to the discouragement uh, into discouragement if we misunderstand the Word and God does not perform as we expected Him to. Pursuit of God in His Word is part of submitting to Him. We do not submit to Him to get what we want. We submit because He deserves our worship. And in that submission, we will find joy. Faith in Christ is not merely believing that he can provide for us, uh, but also that he knows what to provide for us and what to withhold from us. We can hear the shepherd in Peter's words. He knows that apart from the word of God, there is no growth in God. And in the pursuit of the Word is found health and the strength to face trials, face the trials that are to come. The promises in the Word are true. We know this because of the fact that Jesus, the Son of God himself, came, lived, died, rose again, dwell closely with the Lord by pursuing him in his word and grow in the grace of knowing him. Um, I, I, what I will say to, to kids in our uh, profession of faith class, it's a, it's a simple metaphor, but it's a true metaphor. You, you can't grow in a relationship without talking and listening. You talk to the Lord in prayer and you listen to him in his word. And in this way, you grow deeper in fellowship with God, and you grow roots that will sustain you through the hardest trials that you will face in your life. Don't give up on the pursuit for him in his word. Uh, in this pursuit, you will find health and help. This is uh, the, the hope, I think, that Peter wants to leave us with here in this uh, section of his last letter. Since God has spoken in his word, then his people, that is us, must attend to his voice. We must 
hear him and follow him, uh, we must open the word to hear from him. And uh, it, is, it will be to our joy uh, if we follow this simple uh, reality, this simple means of grace. Uh, that's all. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would work in us the renewal of our minds by the power of the Spirit through your word. Give to us humble hearts before you that seek to honor you in all things, that seek to submit to you uh, and your will that is revealed perfectly in your word. Give us um, joyful uh, anticipation for what you will say to us uh, afresh. Give us Give us uh, minds and hearts that desire to read the word over again. Let us, let us never be uh, those who say, well, I read that part. Let's read a new part. We want to hear from you afresh in all parts. And you have spoken clearly to us through your word. We pray that you would uh, grant to us uh, the desire to meet you and seek you in it. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.